The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by my colleague Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest is Adam Fowler, Director of Research at Beacon Economics. Uh, Adam, thank you very much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Um, the magic word today is population. And I've seen stories recently and seen data recently that uh, suggest California is basically flatlining. At least that's my take on it. I wanted to ask you about that. It appears to be flatlining and within the not too distant future, we'll actually be losing population. Right now we're, I think we're at about 39.78, if I'm reading those numbers right from the Department of Finance's uh, demographics unit. So if we're flatlining now, what's the longer trend in your view? and What's it mean? Yeah, um, so it it's an interesting time. California has, um, our default setting, I think, in terms of population has just been grow, grow, grow um, in kind of the, the cultural zeitgeist from you know, as a millennial myself, the days of the Oregon Trail on the, the Apple computers uh, going west, going to California, that's just been kind of part of, uh, I think, the, the mythos out in the world. And so the, the slowing growth that you mentioned, and you're exactly right, uh, from the California Department of Finance is kind of a, it's a bit of a change from how we've thought about ourselves and uh, what our population trajectory has been in the past. When you unpack those estimates, again, the, the, the updated estimates just just out for July from those that were out in January, uh, you, see some, you see some subtle shifts going on in the component parts. So if you think about our population today, if we just took a snapshot of life as it is, um, and then thought about, uh, you know, at some point in time in the future, there are a lot of uh, things that are going on to uh, uh, build that future world. One of the things is fertility rates. Um, analysis suggests uh, that birth rates are declining uh, for women under the age of 30 and actually have been rising for those above 30. Um, you also think about um, generally life expectancy. So um, if we, you know, when we talk about generational cohorts, whether that's baby boomers, Generation X, millennials, um, the size of that cohort, uh, one of the important variables there is their life expectancy at birth. Um, we've actually not seen um, as much movement. It's, the life expectancy hasn't grown as fast as expected, especially when we look back to some of the assumptions back in 20, uh, 2010. And one more that's really important is uh, net migration. So who is coming to California, kind of how you opened our conversation up, but who is leaving and why and what does that mean? And so I think that final, that net migration question is, is really very important because um, as California policymakers, as citizens, we actually uh, play a large role in um, incentivizing um, whether people are, are coming or going. Do we, is less population good, bad, or indifferent? I mean, I'm thinking less population, great, less traffic, less pollution. Okay, less money for services probably from a tax base, <laughs> um, but less crowding. So, I mean, my take on California over the years, it just gets increasingly more crowded, increasingly more congested. 
Um, but is sure. is less population from a policy standpoint or a financial standpoint? Is that not a good thing? Well, let me try to uh, convince you of the virtues of of some of those frustrations, John. Now, there is uh, transportation policy, urban layout policy, things we know now uh, in terms of how to build our cities, how to build our communities that I think would alleviate some of that kind of population agnostic. That being said, if you think about I love to to pose this question uh, as an economist at Beacon Economics. Uh, we often get peppered with uh, questions about, you know, the rise of China. And when I talk with people about the rise of China, why, you know, this kind of this built in feeling that uh, China is, you know, going to be the economic powerhouse, maybe India in the future, um, that's going to eat our lunch or, you know, dominate the next century uh, in global policymaking. When, when you push folks on that, what is the reason behind that? And that is rooted in population. Um, and uh, it's not some sort of trade policy over the next three, four years. It's not some sort of um, poaching of technology. Those are both important issues. But population, that consumer base um, and workforce base is really the heart of the conversation. And the same with Midwestern cities, as we've seen mining towns or manufacturing towns all across the Midwest. Um, as population decline, uh, begins to set in, you can trigger a whole host of downstream impacts uh, that begin to feed on themselves and kind of reinforce uh, challenges. So human beings uh, uh, are really important consumers uh, in our economy and their ability to have uh, income in whatever form that takes, if that's wage, payroll income, uh, that's very important uh, because they spend that locally. So dry cleaners, uh, you know, uh, professional uh, professional services, maybe an accountant, uh, hair haircuts, barber shops, uh, those sorts of things are driven by consumer spending. And so, um, anytime a, 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 a community is building out its infrastructure, you know, you think about uh, police forces, you think about uh, sewer systems and investments around infrastructure. Um, uh, downstream, a lot of those costs get kicked to the future in hopes of that economic growth, that population growth continuing. And so anytime um, a, a population is smaller in the future than it was in its past, it's going to have some of those past obligations from the, the bigger the bigger vision it was uh, at a past time. And so especially around like pension obligations, promises we made uh, to our workforce, those things are going to have to be shouldered by a smaller population if a region is shrinking. So uh, population is so powerful. I think people often don't appreciate uh, when you're thinking about over a long time horizon, when we do economic forecasting for our clients, uh, our long-term models, the, the, the supply side inputs, especially population and labor force characteristics are really uh, uh, so important in those long-term estimates of what economic growth is gonna be in the future. Do those estimates show that long-term employment growth in California is out there that, you know, obviously this is post-pandemic, hopefully we get there, not too far along the line, but employment opportunities in California are still sound and they're a draw, they're a magnet for people to come to this state or other states competing with us there and they're able to draw people? Yeah, I'm I'm still very um I'm still the California optimist. We have a lot of assets both human and otherwise in the state that 
really put us on a continuing uh, strong growth trajectory in a lot of our core industries. We've invested a lot in research and development. We have a lot of higher education institutions doing very interesting work where we run into problems. And I think um, uh, I think that's really can't be underplayed is the fact that we've had an, an amazing amount of job growth. If you think about since the Great Recession, California for a long period of that recovery out of the Great Recession was leading the country in terms of our job growth, our rebounding um, a lot quicker oftentimes than a lot of our other states. And so we were doing great creating jobs. But one of the secrets that so many in California and the policymaking community forget is that jobs need to go home to a bed at night. And so while we've been creating jobs, we have not uh, been creating uh, the appropriate housing uh, to, to support those that job growth. And so, um, you know, you oftentimes hear folks, uh, you know, longing for their kids to move back to California. Even that uh, kind of thought process, there's almost a frustration now that uh, their child, depending on what they've decided to do with their life, what uh, industry they've entered, may not be able to afford a home in the community where they grew up. And so that is very much at our, our feet as citizens uh, and policymakers in California, that regulatory environment that hasn't allowed the supply of housing to keep up with the demand. You know, a while back, the um, Business Insider, this was in September, they tracked um, the cost of U-Haul rentals, one-way U-Haul rentals, from other places to California and from California to other places. This is for a 26-foot uh, truck, U-Haul rental truck. And the what they came up with was it cost you many times more to move from California to somewhere else than it did to go from that other place to California. Some examples, they gave L.A. to Phoenix to rent a U-Haul from L.A. to Phoenix $1,978 uh, to go from Phoenix to LA, $186. <laughs> they pr they probably pay you to bring it back to LA. <laughs> I'm surprised it was <laughs> $198. Yeah. It's almost as if it costs so much to live in California. And just when you're trying to get out, you get stuck with another big, <laughs> a high bill. The, the uh, position the researchers did on this uh, was that the trucks were so much in demand in California to leave. And so it just, you know, supply and demand, it just drove up the price. I thought it was kind of an interesting study. It almost sounds like people are fleeing the state. I think that's probably unfair, but the price differential is really pretty amazing. Yeah, it, it definitely, you're definitely capturing something about the unequal demand on each side. And that's why I joked about U-Haul uh, was probably bearing the cost of shuttling some of those vehicles back or trying to get them back to those cities. That's why I was saying $198 uh, they just as soon if you'll if you'll drive it for them, yeah, they'll they'll even give you a break on that just to get it back so they can take advantage of the the outward again. Um, there's been a lot of anecdotal you evidence um, on that point. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say in Sacramento you hear a lot about uh, it's put in political terms in Sacramento about people leaving, and you hear a lot about uh, the super wealthy leaving, the Larry Ellisons and the Elon Musks and others wanting to leave California and go to a more a state that's more favorable in taxation. Um, but what about my, but my thought was what about the, the regular folk? What about the plain folks? If they are leaving, is this in search of jobs? Is this an, um, you know, is this an economic issue at, you know, at root? Are there other things playing, uh, playing in there? My anecdotal evidence, people I know, including family members that have lived, that have moved to other states, 
it's been a, a job search kind of thing. It's been an economic thing. Um, I don't know if you're seeing the same kind of data, but that, you know, like I say, pure, purely anecdotally, but that's what I hear. Sure. Um, I mean, in terms of some of the more robust data sets are a little bit lagged. So um, understanding the pandemic, uh, the, the kind of we've been using a lot. We've got some FOIA requests out to the United States Postal Service around mail forwarding requests. We're, we're working kind of to get a sense of what's been going on in our major urban areas this year. So um, when we get when we get that data in, we'll be a little more. Uh, understanding uh, about what if there are differences across metros, that sort of that sort of question and answer. But what I would say is that over the past couple of years, uh, a number of census products, the American Community Survey, namely, uh, but uh, as well the D Department of Finance, who uses a, a bit of different administrative data to get at these questions, uh, we've seen that you know, uh, probably 10 years on on net, we've been importing wealthier households and exporting um, lower income households. That, that's been very apparent. What the, the subtle shift in the last two years of that data series um, that's been really interesting and caught my eye is that um, that net import of those wealthier households has really, uh, uh, really stopped. So 2018, 2019, we really don't see the import on net of wealthier households. Uh, they're, they're being uh, uh, netting themselves out in terms of in, in and outflow. But the, the housing conversation can't be under focused on. Um, so much, you know, if you think about the late 70s when Prop 13 um, came into place, um, and you think about kind of our fiscal landscape now. So when you, when you have a home, um, that land value, that assessed value, that, that property value, that's, that's generally pretty stable. Um, a lot of people have flashbacks to the run-up uh, in, in prices and other things um, uh, around the Great, the Great Recession, the kind of uh, nonsense fiscal instruments that were being developed, folks uh, with no documented income. A lot of that's been cleaned up, and uh, aside from kind of policy omissions in the past, uh, th that's really a st uh, quite uh, quite stable asset for most most families in the United States, and so uh, taxing that value is is just a really stable source of income as compared to um, other ways you might tax. Again, uh, when you tax income, if there aren't some sorts of uh, policy uh, solutions for the lower income folks earned income tax credits, things like that, you, you disincentivize uh, income, you disincentivize work oftentimes. And so when you lean really heavily on things that can be affected in downturns, uh, namely potentially income tax, but uh, uh, other things like sales tax and other uses, uh, fees and taxes in, in, in local jurisdictions, um, it, it becomes a little bit more unstable. And so we've had to look for all these different solutions. Um, since we froze in time, a, a lot of the, the growth in, in the tax that can be raised through the property tax system. And so a lot of jurisdictions have to do um, very uh, creative workarounds. If you think about how hard it is to permit, um, develop and build multifamily housing, if, if you are able to get that done, um, in a jurisdiction in California, most more likely than not, the city, the county, uh, some other uh, government agency is going to uh, really try their best to extract uh, various fees, whether that's an impact 
uh, fee revenue or something else of that nature um, in order to try to offset uh, uh, their budget in that jurisdiction. And so, uh, you know, the, the, we, we do a lot of fees in California in our local jurisdictions, especially to try to backfill um, for uh, the lack of property tax revenue we would have um, all, uh, you know, without the Prop 13 in place. The other problem is you subtly incentivize folks that may be uh, older retiring um, from not turning over their housing stock. Um, so in any state, you need to constantly be uh, bringing in, incentivizing um, your younger workforce uh, to, to pay into various systems in the state, not just California, but any state. And so, you know, rather than trying to put the burden of paying for the state services on the, the new younger family, which we do, um, you'd want to be thinking about how you can constantly keep that young, that workforce young um, and participating in your economy. And, and we tend to do just the opposite. So we reward and incentivize uh, folks to stay stay put and not uh, not necessarily move or, you know, maybe downsize or do other things that would be would be beneficial to, to society. You know, one time, um, this was, I think, during the Davis administration, there was a surge in new revenue. And it turned out it was from revenue from the capital gains and largely was from Silicon Valley. And you had this situation where a relatively small number of people comprised or quite a large piece of budget revenue. It, it seemed that the budget rested on, a, on really a, a, a small number of people in Silicon Valley. And it was so dependent on that when the, when the economy went south, uh, it went south in a big way, and there wasn't enough, it wasn't broadly based enough. Uh, the foundation wasn't broad enough to keep it more upright. Have you seen that, or is that Fair representation. That's absolutely that's no, that's absolutely correct, and we still battle those that same challenge today. Uh, you hit the nail on the head in terms of there are so many uh, whether it's the nature of your revenue sources or even thinking about the industries in a given geography. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You want a stool. You want to you want to have a broad footprint so that you know if if you know for example if the auto industry changes in Detroit or those neighboring cities, that there are other industries there to kind of keep uh, uh, keep the economy stable. The same with your revenue sources. And in California, we 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 rely too heavily on on our wealthiest um, uh, to to stabilize our state budgets. And the problem, and you talked about, it's it's fine until there's a downturn. And even today. Um, when there are conversations about budget cuts and the need for the federal government maybe to step in to help support um, some of our cities, counties, and states. Um, this is the exact opposite. Uh, this is the exact wrong time we want um, to be laying off uh, additional workforce, um, whether that's police, educators, any public. In a downturn, you want to be spending. You want to uh, make sure uh, your households are able to uh, keep their income intact and keep their consumer behavior um, as stable as possible. So we do this thing of um, we, we hold on to uh, those, those income sources that are uh, so volatile. And during a downturn, it puts us in the precarious situation of almost 
pushing ourselves even deeper. So at the time when we, we don't want to be losing additional jobs is exactly the time we our, our municipalities are talking about adding more people uh, to the unemployed roles. And so it, it, it tends to deepen uh, the downturn in so many of our states at exactly the time you would want to be bringing people on to payrolls. You know, we talked a lot about out-migration, people leaving California, but there are people who are migrating uh, from California to other places in California. There's uh, sort of a coastal migration to to interior California, I guess maybe to the Central Valley uh, or to Sacramento, for that matter, and, and getting away from the more costly coastal areas. In San Francisco, this has been going on for years. People live in Modesto and they commute uh, to San Francisco daily. Uh, other people live many miles from San Francisco, live in the Central Valley, take the train, and many people in Sacramento do that. Uh, are you seeing that increasing, or is that uh, not something you're seeing? Yeah, we've seen we've seen some of that from the coastal, uh, the places that have both had um, great industry and job growth, but um, have been the hardest places to uh, build housing, whether that's you know, 100% affordable or market rate or some combination of the two. So you've seen you've seen uh, data indicating people have been moving inland, whether it's from the Bay to uh, Sacramento, the Bay to Los Angeles, um, and then folks in Los Angeles oftentimes into the Inland Empire um, and, and or to Phoenix or, or Texas. And so you, you know, uh, whenever uh, there is a constrained supply on housing, um, it you know the the folks uh, tend to push out the rung below them, and so you have this you have this phenomenon where um, you know even in New York you've seen a lot of New Yorkers get pushed to Los Angeles um, uh, just because it's kind of the next the next affordable option on on the radar in terms of oftentimes the complementary industries that they can continue to work in. I think the the big question. Um, when we get out from under this pandemic is understanding how the nature of work has changed, what percentage of our uh, industry and occupational work can be done remotely and how businesses are, how sticky that that temporary shift is going to be. So, you know, we've, uh, a number of the census products over the years have asked about uh, telework, remote work, and that number has always been uh, relatively tiny and stable. It's not as if this was the first year in March when we had a pandemic that laptops had great resolution cameras, that Zoom and these other things existed. But it was the first time um, the kind of stasis or the status quo activity in a lot of our big firms uh, were pushed to, to engage with that and uh, displaced probably a lot of fears of change that uh, organizations have. And so in, you know, in Southern California, the economy ha- has a lot more service has a lot more tourism, has a lot more entertainment um, than the Bay does. The Bay, uh, just by the nature of the industries there and the type of work that's being done, um, the, that's work that can often be done remotely. And um, as, as a lot of big companies have have said that, uh, you know, we're going to allow our employees to work remote for the foreseeable future. I do think that is changing people's, uh, the equation in, the mi- in their mind of what they value. Um, and maybe, you know, the, the rent they're paying on a, a cramped uh, apartment in the Bay uh, could be applied to a neighboring town where uh, they've got a little bit more breathing room to have a family uh, do some of the things that uh, well, the millennials have been putting off 
longer than their, their other uh, age cohorts. You know, when working at home uh, really took off uh, during the pandemic, it just seemed to me really weird. I just, it was hard to get used to. Some people really adjust to it just fine. It, for me, it was just really odd because I'm so used to getting up in the morning and going into a, another space to work, going into an office to work, and then after that, coming home later. But now I'm getting used to it. Now I'm actually starting to like it. I'm, I'm sitting in an easy chair right now <laughs> and kind of relaxing, you know, so so yep. this is okay. So uh, Human beings are people, uh, we're people of habits. Absolutely. I don't think, you know, totally. they say we're adaptable, you can, you know? yeah. If you can get to the gym for 21 <laughs> days in a row, you'll continue to, you know, I do think you hit the nail on the head. We've uh, we've experienced a new world for long enough that it's uh, it's uh, going to be a real challenge to, to reset. Uh, uh, Adam, just one last question. Um, so looking forward, uh, it's kind of where we started, I guess. We, we look like the population is level increase, is leveling off now and may decrease in the near future. So what's that mean long term uh, for California as far as whatever you know metric you want to use, as far as quality of life, as far as economic basis, whatever. But what's the long term outlook for, for California? Uh, if that, I mean, I would say a couple things. One, I would say it's not inevitable. We actually have some agency and we have some control over the situation in terms of how we utilize, incentivize our land in our dense urban areas. The second thing I would say, um, the local governments are going to really have to rethink their budget strategy if, the, if these trends continue. Um, the, the, the idea that growth is just uh, part of the equation. And again, so many, so many of our systems, it's built in when you're talking about robust growth for uh, a century. Um, that's, that's just baked in as a tacit kind of assumption. And so um, if that really does begin to shift, that, that's going to rethink a lot of our, our fiscal structure um, in a lot of our localities. I would say as well, like the, the virtue of uh, lots of human beings the virtue of population is just so profound. Um, you know, I, in, in places where there aren't a lot of people, you can think about the smallest uh, of things, like restaurants. In, in a town that's very small, the local restaurant probably has a menu that's very broad. They need to attract the tastes and preferences of as many people as they can. Uh, when you go to bigger cities, you get people with no, more diverse tastes, whether that's arts and culture, uh, whether that's uh, very sp uh, specific uh, cuisines, restaurants, types of food, and you develop expertise. And so uh, population and population density um, gives us a lot of the things we like to take advantage of here in California. Um, and if that, if that really begins to be a problem in the future, some of those uh, nice things we've grown accustomed to may not always be there uh, just because we don't have enough folks to support them in the market. Great. Fair enough. Adam Fowler, Director of Research at Beacon Economics, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Take care. And Tim Foster, you were the silent partner today, but thank you very much. I was. It's going to be very easy to edit this episode. <laughs> Great. And this is John Howard. And uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time around. Take care.